reminded me of one of the many reasons that I love North Hills Church. And there are many reasons that I love North Hills, and I won't go through a list this morning, but uh, one of the reasons I love North Hills, believe it or not, is we are not a popular church. Now, that's not like one of those middle school, you know, bemoanings that we're not popular and the cool kids don't like us. It is a rejoicing that we're not a popular church. Uh, you're likely not here, sorry, Ryan, for the music. Um, you're likely not here for, sorry, Evan, for our family ministry, or youth ministry, or kids ministry. Uh, you're likely not here on behalf of all of our elders for the preaching. Uh, you are, if you're here by your own volition, you are likely here because uh, you are like-minded and you have a high view of Scripture and a high view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we are not a popular church, as uh, Adam pointed, uh, said this morning. If we were a popular church, we'd probably turn uh, the last part of Daniel into a good conference uh, and sell some tickets and have lots of charts. Uh, but that is not us. And so our desire, and as we kind of ch- turn the corner here in Daniel and, and get to this apocalyptic part uh, these next uh, couple months, uh, our desire, as we do every book of the Bible, is to faithfully go through Scripture and to see what the Lord says. Uh, going through these apocalyptic parts of the Bible lends itself, if you will, to the opportunity to veer away from what Scripture clearly teach and end up in speculation. Uh, that is an easy place to go. Last week, if you were here, Adam had a great analogy that I really enjoyed, uh, the analogy of a, character, a caricature versus serious painting. It's easy, as you go through Scripture, you look at Daniel, and especially if you look at Revelation, or Revelations, as I think it's sometimes called, um, but the book of Revelation, you go there, it's easy to pick, on some of the, to pick out some of these parts of the end times, or some of these visions and dreams, if you will, and hone in on that. And if you do, what you have is a caricature. You have an overinflated view of reality and not a serious painting. And so there is no shortage of caricatures, unfortunately, as you go through the book of Daniel, as you go through the book of Revelation, as you think about the end times. Um, But these caricatures, they lead to charts that stretch a mile but get nowhere and series of books that should be left behind. And so that is not our desire this morning. Our desire is to faithfully walk through Scripture. At North Hills, we are committed to serious paintings, if you will, We want to mine out the best that we can through the Holy Spirit uh, to see what the Word of God says and what it means to its original audience and even to us today. So this is where we are. And this brings us to the end of Daniel chapter 7. And the end of Daniel chapter 7, as every text that we go through, is a very interesting chapter. There is some uh, wonderful stuff here. And hopefully you have read it. You've been working your way through it, and hopefully you've been doing so prayerfully. Uh, This is, um, as we said, Daniel chapter 7 is kind of uh, where Daniel changes from the first six chapters from a narrative now to this apocalyptic genre, looking at the end times, uh, as we'll see. Maybe not necessarily the end times as we think, but at the end, uh, and some things coming uh, forward, if you will, that have not yet happened for the people of Israel. Daniel chapter 7 is also the end of the Aramaic part, portion of Daniel. And so as we get there to verse 28, when he says, here is the end of the matter, uh, he is both speaking to uh, this, the end of not just his vision here, but also even at the end of uh, the Aramaic portion of Daniel. And so there's a lot happening here in Daniel chapter 7. Some would even say that Daniel 7 is the central chapter in the book of Daniel because of where it's located and what it's dealing with and how it handles Daniel's vision 
and connects to the people of God. So we will see. With all that, let us dive in. Let us read now Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 through 28. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. It's exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured the, uh, and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise and another shall rise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this text that's before us. We thank you for uh, Adam and Evan and their work in Daniel 7 already to bring us to this point, Lord, of uh, this vision. And now as we look to what it means, may you, uh, by your spirit, may you speak to us and give us clarity this morning on the things that we can have clarity in and trust in the things that we can't. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for Christ. And thank you for the spirit who brings all illumination and truth. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. So as we see there at the very beginning in verse 15, this was not an easy uh, time for Daniel. Uh, he says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, what's interesting to note, he's still in the vision. So you go there to Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. He's having this vision. He's still in the vision. So his head is spinning within the vision. And so at the end there at verse 28, when the end of the matter has come and, and he's no longer speaking of his vision, his head is still spinning. And so this is not an easy vision for Daniel. We're not going to read 
read the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 7, but if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, it is a difficult vision. There's a lot of things happening. You've got these four beasts that are, uh, that are, that are coming forth in this vision and, and being dealt with, and then you have, uh, you have the enemy, and you have the Lord, you have the Ancient of the Days, you have all these different people, different things, different things happening, and Daniel is perplexed. He does not know what's going on. This is not an easy word of the Lord as the word of the Lord is usually not. And so uh, his response here is he, uh, he wants to know what's going on. And God is speaking to his prophet to reveal what is coming. This is definitely a prophetic text. Um, much of what we see here has not happened. Uh, and has not yet happened. If you remember, uh, as we started Daniel chapter 7, we're no longer in chronological order. Uh, from uh, uh, chapters 1 through chapter 6, there was a chronology there. Things were happening in order. We see the three different kings. We see Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then we see um, uh, Darius at the end. Now we're back to Belshazzar, as we see there in verse 1 of chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And so, uh, so all of these things have not happened. Babylon is still standing. It's not been taken over yet by the Medes and Persians. And so what is happening in his vision and what he is about to understand is yet to come. And Daniel is alarmed. And so he asks what is going on here as we see there in verse 16. He says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he found somebody just standing around. Hey, What's going on? What is happening of all these things that are unfolding before us? What is going on? And this one who is standing by indeed gives him an understanding. It says there in verse 16, So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. And in verse 17, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So that's the first part of the interpretation. All these beasts that he sees coming up out of the earth and up out of the water, he says these are four kings or four kingdoms, and those terms are used interchangeably because you cannot be a king without a kingdom, and you cannot have a kingdom without a king. And so these four kings and kingdoms are represented in this dream, and both heaven and Adam have alluded to these four kingdoms. Um, the, the For... For transparency's sake, we'll say that it is difficult, not difficult. There are, there, there are some godly people who hold to some different views as we work through Daniel chapter 7 here. Um, but we're going to hold to what we call a Roman view uh, of what these four kingdoms are. And the same that Evan has said, and the same that Adam has said. And as we'll see, especially in Daniel chapter 8, we're not going to get ahead there, but we're going to see... Even he brings some greater clarity in the next vision of these kingdoms and the order in which they're coming. And so we see, if we take the Roman view of these four beasts that represent the four kingdoms, they represent specifically Babylon, uh, the Medes slash Persians, which make up one kingdom, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. And we see Babylon mentioned. We see in Daniel chapter 8, the Greeks, the, the Medes and Persians mentioned. And we don't specifically see Rome mentioned, but we'll see this morning why it seems pretty clear that that's who he is referring to here. And we've already seen these four kingdoms show up, not just from Adam and not just from Evan, but uh, in Daniel chapter 2. And, and Adam did a great job last week of pointing to the parallel nature of Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Uh, and in Daniel chapter 2 is whenever, um, 
whenever King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and he has his dream of this really tall statue. If you remember, uh, uh, I don't forgot the measurements, nine foot. Remember, it was as wide as the altar thing here, and I think like uh, eight stories tall or something. It's this very odd-shaped uh, statue, but it was in these layers that represent the kingdoms. And we see at the very top was King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the gold part it has these different elements, these different metals that represent the four different kingdoms that we see again this morning. But those kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2, they were represented by precious metals, if you remember. Uh, an observation has been made by, by someone much smarter than me that the, that the, that the kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2, they were viewed from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. As it's his dream and, he's, and as he sees these kingdoms, he sees them in a much cleaner, more distinct way than what we see in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 and what the, the observation is that in Daniel chapter 7, the kingdoms are seen from God's perspective. They're not these clean, neat, orderly metals, but they're these uh, unruly, wild, kind of crazy animals. These amoral animals, if you will, that will be destroyed. Not just destroyed as inanimate objects, as we see the metal in Daniel chapter 2, but actually judgment brought against and, uh, judgment brought against and killed as we see in Daniel chapter 7, as God on his throne, his throne of judgment will bring judgment against these beasts, against these nations, against these kingdoms, against these kings. So we see the, the difference there. Although there is a parallel to 2 and 7, there is a difference. These precious metals versus these vicious animals. And, uh, and you can see just, uh, just kind of quickly some... Um, some similarity to these nations there in Daniel chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 4. The first was like a lion who had an eagle's uh, wings. And you see a, a connection there early in Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar uh, being having a, a similar analogy as a lion and an eagle. Uh, and then you see there in the, uh, the, the next kingdom, uh, the second one, in verse 5, like a bear. Uh, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was so rise and devoured this flesh. And we see this, this bear that kind of had two levels, if you will, which is the second kingdom, likely the, uh, the, the Medes and the Persians, who are two kingdoms. And we'll see that more in Daniel chapter 8. And then uh, what I think is interesting, you see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird. Now, does a leopard need wings? I've never met a leopard personally. I've watched National Geographic and I've seen the videos. They're very fast creatures. I don't think they need wings, uh, but not only does he have uh, wings, it says he has four wings there of a bird. And so it's, it's this picture of this very fast kingdom. And even historically, we can look at the kingdom of the Greeks and, and how Alexander the Great was known for taking over the known world at this rapid speed. Uh, now, again, some of this we know is speculation. We're trying to avoid speculation. But it is interesting to me how we can attach these to these kingdoms of men and time to history because all of this is historical and all of this is yet to come at the same time. And so we see that God's word always points us to truth. So the identity of these kingdoms, uh, they are agreed on by most scholars and some would disagree. But for the sake of what we're talking about this morning, it... it uh, we're going to see ultimately whether it's these four kingdoms or any four kingdoms throughout humanity's history that the end result is still the same. But there is hope and encouragement. There is both hope 
encouragement and discouragement even. This is not going to happen quickly for the original audience. As Daniel is writing to, these, to the Hebrew people who are in exile, it's not like, okay, right now as he's writing in Daniel chapter 7 to those in this time period where they still have another king in Babylon, still multiple kings here, it's not going to be quick. It's not going to, the end is not near. Really, it's another 500 plus years until the Roman Empire comes into place, and another 600 or so years until Christ comes. Another 2,500 years to where we are today. And so this is not a, a quick um, foreshadowing. This is not a quick prophecy. So it's encouraging that where they are now, they will see, but it's also, this, there, is a, there is a lot of time uh, that's going to elapse between Daniel's vision and to the fourth beast or the fourth, fourth kingdom. So despite what exactly these nations uh, mean and when they will come to power and how long they will rule, the interpreter emphasizes something more than just who they are. Because Daniel asks, hey, what's going on? Who are these kingdoms? What is happening? What is, what is all the details? And he says in verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. And in verse 18, he says this, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So they're not just receive the kingdom, but they're not going to lose it. Because the kingdom, as, we, as we've seen, keeps on shifting hands. Is it the Babylonian kingdom? Is it the Medes kingdom? The Persian kingdom? The Greek kingdom? Is it the Roman kingdom? Is it someone in between? Ultimately, what this interpreter of the vision tells Daniel I love that but there in verse 8. But the saints of the Most High, they will receive this kingdom forever and ever and ever, and they will not lose it. And we're going to see this hope again before our chapter is over this morning. But Daniel wants to know more. We see in verse 19, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. So he told him, he said, look, these beasts... They, they represent four kings, but everything's going to be okay. Daniel could just like rest and relax and wake up and go about his business, right? He wants to know more in this vision. And he presses him about this fourth beast because something was different, it says, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying. Now, you would think the others were terrifying enough, right? When you see bears and lions and leopards coming out of, uh, out of the, uh, the ocean here and up from the ground and having these wings and, and all these things that he's seen. But the fourth one was exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped out what was left with its feet. And then he goes on to say about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up from, uh, came up, and before which three of them fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. And so uh, he mentions all these already, as we see earlier in chapter seven, what is known as the little horn. We won't see the little horn reference uh, by name in, the, uh, in the, the second half of chapter seven here, but when you go up to uh, verse 8, I believe it is, I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
And so this, as he continues to elaborate on this fourth beast, not only do you have the fourth beast, you have this, uh, these ten horns, and then this little horn that takes over three horns and rises up, and the horn has a mouth and eyes and is speaking. And then it says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So as he elaborates on this fourth kingdom, on this fourth beast, on this fourth king that is not named, we, again, as we said, conservative scholars, and as we understand uh, even now on this side of history, and as we understand humanity, as we understand all the kingdoms that came after the Babylonians, the, the fourth and final world-dominating kingdom, if you will, was the kingdom of the Romans. And we probably know more about the Romans than we do any other kingdom. We know how merciless they were and how they conquered the known world at the time. One scholar says this, this Rome showed itself to be the first truly universal empire, empire of antiquity. The first truly universal empire. So these other ones, the Greeks and the Persians, the Babylonians, they were, they were serious and they were, they were savage. And they, uh, they, they, they definitely uh, conquered much of the known world. But by the time Rome came along, there was more world to conquer. And Rome was vicious. So it said Rome, it showed itself to be the first truly universal empire of antiquity. Rome is characterized by its conquering and crushing power and by its ability to consolidate the territories which it seized. So Rome marched all over the known world. Rome marched into Africa, and Rome marched into Asia. And of course, Rome took over the ancient Near East. Rome invaded and took over all of the known world. They were vicious. They were worse than these other three beasts, the Babylonians, the, the Medes, Persians, and the Greeks. And we don't know this just from history. We know this from Scripture. Not just in Daniel. We see it in other places. This is the, whenever Jesus was alive. This is the time period that he came into. Rome was dreadful. And not just to the world and the world in which they conquered, but Rome was dreadful to the people of God. Dreadful to the people of God. We see, we see it prophesied there in verse 21 and 22. And I looked and this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now that's, that's, some, that's some very difficult, that's tragic language. And this little horn, they came from the ten horn to this fourth beast, that he prevailed that he won. It says there in verse 25, I believe it's 25, yeah, he, he shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And the language we have there in verse 25 is this picture of over and over and over attacking the people of God. So this fourth beast is not just nefarious, if you will, to the world. They're dreadful to the people of God. As we think about ancient Rome and the way that we know ancient Rome, ancient Rome made a sport out of martyring Christians. They made a sport out of killing Christians, of persecuting Christians. If you could, if you could travel in the history of humanity, and if you could like go into a time machine, you can go anywhere you wanted to throughout humanity's history. If you were just thinking about yourself and your safety as a believer, the last time period that you'd want to go is during the Roman Empire because they were seeking these 
Christians that were seeking these who came after Christ, who were following Christ, and persecuting, martyring, killing. They made a sport out of it. They cheered as the death of Christians filled Colosseums. Based on our understanding of Daniel 7, understanding of reading history, the greatest enemy of the church and the Lord was Rome. If you look up, if you look throughout all of history, this period is the worst. But it doesn't make sense. If this is the worst period in history, let me ask you a couple of questions. When did Christ come to begin this earthly ministry? He could have come at any time in human history, but when did he come? When did he lay down his life and, and choose to come dwell with man? He said, oops, I went to the wrong time period, Father. Can we redo this? Can I come as a baby like in, you know, 500 B.C.? Maybe like in 500 A.D. It's dark and, you know, it's not very, there's no technology, but at least it's better than ancient Rome. But when did Christ come to begin his earthly ministry? During the time of the fourth and foulest beast that Daniel mentions here, that Daniel sees here. At what point in history did Christ lay down his life and submit his earthly body to be crucified at the time in which the crucifixion, the time in which capital punishment was at its absolute worst? At the time of Rome, when he would go to a cross and be submitted to the vilest of villains, Rome. And honestly, as, as working through this, one of the, the most amazing facts, if you will, one of the most amazing truths that, that, that come to my mind working through this is the fact that God began the New Testament church inside the belly of the fourth beast. As you work through these four beasts here, and as you work through this, this vile, vulgar kingdom that is constantly against the people of God, who speaks words against the Most High, who wears out the saints of God. If we were God, we wouldn't choose to start the church during this kingdom, would we? But this is when the, king, this is when the New Testament church is born and when it flourishes in the midst of this fourth and final beast, this kingdom of the Romans. And if the church can be birthed and flourished amidst such a vile kingdom, how much more can the established church thrive today now that the kingdom of God is at hand? But our foundation is not from a history of success. It's not from looking at church history and all the things that we've learned, although these are helpful, and learning all the, the ways to avoid persecution and to have good laws on our side. Our foundation, our hope is not in the history of our success. It's not even our present size. Has the church ever been larger in the history of humanity than it is today? No. But our foundation, our hope are not in these things. It is Christ who is our conquering cornerstone for the church and just as he was the hope and victory for the church in Rome and for the, uh, for the Hebrews in exile, he is our hope today. He is our hope today. And so there was this future, future suffering promised. There was no doubt, as Daniel had this vision, that there would be suffering, there would be difficulty for the people of God, both in his time 
and in the time to come. Until, until the Ancient of Days came. Until the Ancient of Days. Until the Lord Himself judged the evildoers and gave His kingdom to His people. It would be difficult. Future suffering would be promised. But future victory would also be secured. It would also be secured. And as we finish, as we go, we finish 26 there, it says, and changes. It goes from this, um, this very dismal time of suffering for the people of God and the, the ten horns that emerge and the, the little horn that comes. And we won't really speak of the little horn this morning. Uh, it depends on on how you view the end times and how you view Daniel and Revelation. It depends on, on how you see um, the, the final kingdom and when the final kingdom comes. Some would say that the, the little horn is the Antichrist. It would seem to me that it is at least the spirit of the Antichrist. As we see that the spirit of the Antichrist is present in every generation. Some would even say the little horn is not an individual, but it's a group or it's another kingdom. But regardless of who it is, regardless of even when he comes, that there is one who would raise his head against God and his people. In the midst of all this, we see, though, at verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment. And so God sits on his throne and court comes into session. And this is what it says. And his dominion shall be taken away. Not God's dominion, but the dominion that He has given the enemy. Now, if you look at chapter 7, the word dominion is used seven times. It's used there in verse 6. It's used in verse 14 twice. Uh, it's used in verse 26 and 27. And verse 14 and verse 12. Dominion's all through here. And dominion is always had by the Lord, but there are times that He gives dominion to these beasts. There is times that he gives dominion to the kingdom of man that they may go and cause havoc. And why is God causing havoc? Or why is God allowing this havoc to be caused? Why is God allowing his people to be uh, persecuted and sought after and misaligned? Why is God allowing the world to be conquered by evil kingdoms? Ultimately, for his glory and the good of his people, as all things are done whether we understand it or not in the time. So this dominion, he has given, it says there in, in chapter uh, 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 6, it says, After this I looked and behold another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. But then in verse 12, it says dominion was taken away. So there's this constant back and forth of dominion that God always has control of it. God has never lost His dominion. God has never lost His control. God has never lost His sovereignty. Ever. And every other religion, every other belief system, there is this constant battle between good and evil for all eternity. But there has never been a battle between good and evil with our God. For He has never lost and He has never been in a position to lose. He just, it seems like it at times. He gives dominion to whom He will, when He wants, for however long He wants. But comes verse 26, now court's in session. 
And he sits in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey. I think I missed that one. There's eight. Scratch it. Dominion is used eight times in chapter 7. And so we see that God always has dominion, and God is going to give His dominion. He's going to give His kingdom. He's going to share His kingdom with His people. And we see this three times as, as we use repetition often in Scripture, as the Spirit uses repetition often in Scripture to highlight, to emphasize, to bring attention to. Dominions used seven times in the suffering and victory of God's people are used three times here in verses 15 through 27. There in verse 18, there in verse 22, and now in verse 27, we see the suffering, but more importantly, the victory of God's people. One of our very present overarching themes of Daniel and the Bible is the absolute power of God. We say that He is omnipotent or all-powerful. He's not mostly powerful. He's not going to receive more power. He is now, then, and for all eternity, all-powerful. No, no nation, no king, no kingdom, no time period, no law, not anything will ever separate us from the love and power of God. Yes, I agree. We should go to Romans chapter 8 real quick. Go ahead to Romans chapter 8. Many of you may have thought about that as I said. I said what I said. Romans 8, verse 31. To the end of the chapter there. Well, then shall we say to these things, If God is for us, who can be against us? He, did not, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, all-powerful, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And can't you imagine how much of all of that God's people endured during the time of exile, during the time of, of Roman captivity, during, since the beginning of humanity, since the beginning of enmity between the enemy and Christ. As it is written, for your sake we were... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers. I love that. Nor things present or things to come. That truth was as true in Daniel's time. That truth was as true in the Roman time. It's as true as it is today. And nothing present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Our God is not just an omnipotent God who is all-powerful. He is. But because He loves us, He then focuses that power, that omnipotence, that dominion for not just His glory, but for the good of His people. Because He loves us. And so as we endure even tribulation in this age, whatever that looks like, looks very different than it did for the exiles, it looks very different than it did for um, early church, looks very different than it does for our brothers and sisters across the planet right now. But in different ways, we still, at times, may suffer for our faith. But because God loves us, nothing will ever separate us from that love. And His power, His dominion will always be towards His people. We win because He has already won. He has already overcome. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, and we say this often, you will have tribulation. One of the promises of Jesus. It's going to be tough. There'll be tribulation. There'll be difficulty. There'll be persecution. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. We win because he has already won. He has overcome the world. This truth would have been a salve for the people of God during exile in Daniel's time. It would have been so comforting for the people of God during the first century amidst persecution, martyrdom, and it should be equally encouraging for us today. The kings and kingdoms will rise to power. We may not see kingdoms anymore quite like the Roman Empire, but we still see evil men, evil kingdoms, evil nations, even evil laws at times rise to power, but they will fall by the decree of our mighty God. Christ the victor will return for his people. And we will receive the eternal kingdom of God. A kingdom that will never fail, will never fall, and will always be at peace. But here's what's more. We don't have to just look down the road. We don't just have to look for when he will come, when he will return again for his people. We don't have to wait to experience the kingdom of God. We get to enjoy it now. Because the kingdom is now and also not yet. We are in the kingdom of God. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. Christ upon his death, his burial, and his resurrection ushered in the kingdom of God. And it is very present in the hearts and lives of his people. Unlike Daniel, our thoughts do not have to alarm us. We do not have to be fearful of what we see around us. Let us take our great hope in the hero of our faith, Daniel. No. Jesus. Our great hero is Jesus. So let us take great hope that he has already won and he has already come. Let us pray.